Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's episode 38. Um, that's a nice number, isn't it? 38. Um, how have you been? How's your week been? You know, the usual questions. Um, the weather, that's a bit rainy, isn't it? Now, the most important update from me that I can offer you right now is that since last week, and I'm assuming it's not listened to the episode, He's turned the alarm off, that little owl alarm that was whistling and whooping and howling every time he walked past it. Ian's turned off the bloody alarm, and I can't tell you how thrilled I am to hear that, um, or not hear it, as the case more accurately accurately is, um, if I can say the word. Um, so that's been good. When that's been the highlight of your week, um, you know that one, uh, you're not a spring chicken anymore, and two, you are still definitely in lockdown um as we very much are this week as we very much are but in much more enjoyable lighter news we turn to this week's episode another of the biggins in the cage repertoire it's 2002's spike jones directed charlie kaufman written adaptation um which many argue many will say is one of the if not the greatest Nicolas Cage performance of all time. Um, returning to the podcast, Tom Broom-Jones, you remember we discussed Con Air, what feels like a lifetime ago. Um, we get into the, the nitty-gritty, the meat and potatoes, if this one, um, a very, very fun conversation. Um, always a joy to have Tom on the podcast. He brings a wisdom beyond his young years to the podcast um and you know you feel like you've learned something about films i learned how to pronounce uh spike jones's surname um which i definitely knew i knew it the whole time and if you hear me say say yons in this you're a liar and you can't prove it um it was the first time watching adaptation for me which at the time of recording is still available on netflix thoroughly recommend that you go and watch it it's an absolute uh, masterclass in acting, in storytelling, in the whole gamut of emotions um, that you want to have in a film that's so much fun to watch, so much fun to talk about, and I hope you have fun listening to the episode as well. It's a good one. But before we get into it, as ever, get the socials out of the way. You can find the podcast on Twitter at cage underscore podcast, Instagram at cage rage pod. And we're available on all the usual and major streaming podcasty platforms. You know, your Apples, your Spotify's, your Amazons. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, which you can also provide a rating, Apple Podchaser, for instance, please do um, drop us a like, a comment, a rating. It's much appreciated, helps the show grow. And if you think there's people out there who may enjoy these um 
whatever it is that this podcast is, please do feel free to send it to them as well. And uh, feel free to get in touch over on the social medias. Love to hear from you. Um, always usually interacting on there instead of working and also shitposting many, many a cage meme. Also, also, next week, I know we're talking about next week already, episode 39, we are doing something a little bit different instead of um you know keeping the chronology we're breaking the rules slightly we're skipping ahead from 2002 to 2021 for a valentine's day episode drop where we're talking about willie's wonderland yes the um the film we're all been gagging and chomping at the bit to see nicholas cage versus demonic animatronics it is the rumble of a lifetime um i've seen the film and when this episode releases it's still under strict embargo so i can't talk about it just yet but i am chomping at the bit to uh dive into this one so this week adaptation next week willie's wonderland what a twofer you're lucky lucky lot we will see you then but for right now it's me it's tom broom jones it's adaptation enjoy We continue along 2002 this week with the critically acclaimed comedy-drama adaptation. (laughs) Nicolas Cage stars as writer Charlie Kaufman and his fictional twin brother, Donald, as Charlie desperately tries to adapt Susan Orlean's novel, The Orchard Thief. Now returning on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if this film is able to bloom or just wither away is writer, film buff, tweeter extraordinaire and first ever two-time returnee on the podcast. It's Tom Broom-Jones. Tom, thank you once again for joining me on the journey. How are you doing? Two-time, two-time. I've got to get it up to five so I can hear my book of tea five-time thing. Uh... Ten seconds in, I've done a wrestling reference. I promise that's the last one. I'm okay. I'm good. Uh, Settling into lockdown again. Uh, Recovering from surgery, so I'm just stuck indoors. I I came back to my parents' house for Christmas and then lockdown struck, so I can't travel back to my flat. So I'm stuck at my parents' till mid-February, which is fine. Like, that's great. I love them to pieces, but... I do feel like I'm a kid again. <laughs> it's a bit yeah. weird. I'm 25 and I'm just sort of hanging out with my parents all day. It's a bit weird. Yeah, I I, I get that. I've like I said, we were sort of saying off camera. I've done. Um, I make it sound like it's a prison stretch. I've done sort of obviously stints going back home after I sort of left post university when I used to live in Southampton. Uh, sort of moved back home for about it was about six seven months before I moved to the north and. I think at that time I would have been 26, 27, and I don't know what it is. It's once you've flown the nest once and you sort of go back, even though sometimes it's nice to be back, there's something in you that feels a bit regressive that's like, oh, God, my wings have been spread. I feel, obviously, uh, no pun intended, a little bit caged. Um, so, you know, obviously, myself, the listeners, wishing you a speediest of recoveries so you can uh, get back to doing you down in uh, that there Bournemouth. Um yeah which I've only visited infrequently. I've, I went to a pier, uh, one plushie on the claw machine. Um, I went to, what, uh, it's like the Sea Life Centre, the Ocean Aquatic Animal. I'm just grasping the at o- words now. Yeah, the Oceanarium. Oceanarium, that was probably what it was. That was probably what it was. Um, That's a good day out, though. It's a good day out. 
It was a nice day, actually. I remember um, you get you get there to certain times at these places, and you get to see like certain animal things, like the animals come out, and you get to see, you got to see the penguin feeling. Always a bit of fun to see penguins running and skating around. And um, I just can't remember that the lady who was feeding them had this like bucket of whatever fish it is the little penguins eat. And then they sort of scream for a fish. She feeds them a fish, and then she was out of fish. Then all ten penguins started screaming, and then she just very suddenly went, um, the, the show's over. So we just had to <laughs> we just had to leave as these chorus of penguins were just blood curdlingly screaming. So um that stuck with me. That's that I think about penguin screaming when I think about Bournemouth, but I'm sure there's more to it that uh, that you're aware of, um, than idiots like me are in any case. So Yeah, somewhat. I mean, let's we we've got to remember that I'm a northerner living in the south. Meanwhile, you're living it up back in uh, back in my stomping grounds. So I know I've. Uh, it is what it is. Feel like you know. Feel feel like a pretender. Feel out. Feel out of place. I've been a Midlander in the south. A Midlander now in the north. Um, you wouldn't think I, was, I am like I'm like a bit. Well, this is the thing <laughs> about the Midlands in general. We are neither here nor there, northern or southern, depending on who you're speaking to on this. Uh, Strange Brexited island we yeah. we call our home country now. So I've got a friend from Northampton, and we just make fun of him and just say that Northampton's not a real place. <laughs> There's, uh, you know, at some point the North and Southern Hamptons are going to have to fight to be the true dominant Hampton. Um, but I I did my time in Southampton. I did my stretch. Um, it's kind of kind of a weird thing. So I, I went back there about a year or two after I'd left and. It was one of those weird things. I was like, "Oh, did it? Did I sort of pine for it?" But I was, it's like closure going back to the south. And I was like, "No, I'm 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 very good in the north now." Um, and you know, hashtag not an ad. The north, what a lovely place! What a lovely place! Oh, yeah. Lovely people. Went up there to see. Went up there to see my gran uh, last year, <clears throat> and uh, it always feels nice to go back. Um, I've not lived up in the north since I was eleven years old, but. I remember it very clearly, and my accent's not gone anywhere. <clears throat> so every time I go back, it is a bit like, oh, everything's kind of the same, but a bit different. This is weird. That building wasn't here last time I was here. Stuff like that. But I do yeah. get a nostalgia for it. Yeah, I think from living in Leeds, the only thing that seems to change, I think obviously other than the... Uh, Horrible thing of uh, venues and such and whatever else has to keep closing down because of, um, let's just say, government incompetence for nearly 365 days and the rest. Um, but in yet various donut delivery places keep opening. Um, it's, huh. that, it's that thing, obviously, Zuckerberg's listening to all of us. It's, you know, when you you have a chat about something, then it pops up on your advertisements. Um, and they know what I like because I placed an order for some this morning because... What else am I doing in lockdown? The only people I will open the door to at the moment is Amazon delivery drivers and delivery delivery drivers, and God bless them as a service. I do. I do find that the further north you get, the more of uh, an abundance of deep fried sweet treats you find. Uh, you know, going all the way to Scotland, and you get the deep fried Mars bar, which is sort of the, the pinnacle of that that, that food yeah. group, if you will. Yeah, the deep-fried independence—the one sweetness they can't yet have, as much as they uh, as much as they pine for that sweet, delicious taste. Mars bars—they will have to uh, settle for 
for now. Um, but in terms of lockdown, obviously for me it's been a case still cracking on with the uh, with the cages. We obviously this week we turned to adaptation, which I know last time you were on the podcast we were talking about Con Air. Uh, you reference as being a top tier cage film for yourself. Um, my favorite, my my favorite cage film. Well, my no. favorite film that he's in, because mm-hmm. I think there is a. I, I, I made a point of this on my last appearance. There's a clear line in the sand between a film that Nicolas Cage is in and a Nicolas Cage film. There is a big oh, difference. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely something I've been... That's been almost a mantra on this podcast since you uh, since you voiced it. And it's been um, always interesting to look for those distinctions of Cage film, a, f- a film that Cage is in. Sometimes it's a film that a Cage is in that almost becomes a Cage film and sometimes vice versa. Finding these lines, the... Uh, the elements, the layers of Cage, but um, with adaptation especially as well, and uh, something I've sort of, I guess for my own admittedly biased viewing of Cage, is for for the longest time with all these Cage films I've been watching, I've been seeing Cage on screen, but almost not seeing him as the character, but I'm watching Nicolas Cage. I think there are some actors that are so distinct that sometimes it is difficult to sort of separate the art from the artist, so to speak, but um, certain films I've found that sort of separation. Matchstick uh, Men to be one of them, uh, oh, especially yes. such an underrated. Yeah, that's a really underrated film. Very underrated film. Love that. Um, spoke about that with comedian Stuart Laws um, not too long ago at the time of recording. Uh, should clarify, but certainly for this one as well for adaptation, this was another one of those. Um, for lack of a better term, rare films where it was for me, I didn't see Nicolas Cage, I saw Charlie Kaufman, I saw Donald Kaufman, I saw two separate characters, and I was pretty much from the word go, I was hooked into this film. Such strong acting all around, such wonderful performances. And I think, um, and obviously in the grand scheme of Cage for me, I haven't seen all the films yet, but I think this one is going to be... a a solid top five for me. Um, Nicholas Cage said there was an interview with Total Film in 2013 when he was asked his own top five films and he put this at number two behind Leaving Las Vegas. Um, well, he's going to put the film he won the Oscar for at number one. I think, it, I think it makes sense. I get I sus- that. <laughs> I suspect if he'd won for this, I think we'll touch upon this later, um, scandalous oh, that he didn't win scandalous um and that that is what i'm counting on some scandalous that he didn't win any awards glad he got the nominations um he said in his own words i was a little nervous about the masturbation sequences but i thought it would give me a chance to do my take on what i admired so much that jeremy irons had done with cronenberg when he played the twins in dead ringers um (laughs) adding i wanted to play twins I thought it would be a marvellous challenge and the best compliment I got after playing Charlie and Donald Kaufman. I got a handwritten letter from David Cronenberg. He said, hats oh, off wow. to you. So that meant a lot, a lot to me. So, Oh, um, that's awesome. Shout so, out David Cronenberg, man. Shout out to David Cronenberg. Um, so obviously for a number of reasons, this film um, meant a lot. Meant a lot to Cage. Um, but as we were sort of saying there, and this is where your Oscar trivia comes into play, um, this 
critically acclaimed film, so many nominations, um, a lot of awards, especially in supporting categories um, for uh, Meryl Streep and... um, Chris Cooper. Chris Cooper, that's the one. Uh, Chris Cooper, um, across sort of BAFTAs, Oscars, uh, Golden Globes as well. But interested to get your sort of take on the nominations, all this, um, the awards he's got as well. So the three leads all got nominated cage for best actor street for supporting actress cooper for supporting actor chris cooper actually won the oscar he won the academy award for best supporting actor for this film which i i love because this is a very strange film to give awards attention to but at the same time it's not and I'll, I'll delve into this more later on because it somehow simultaneously is both a really conventional film and a very unconventional film. Yeah. There are, Charlie Kaufman has this way of writing that very few can imitate and a lot of people hate it. Um, Mark Kermode, my favourite film critic, really doesn't like Charlie Kaufman's films. Really? Yeah, he has a real sort of ongoing feud with him. Uh, that stems from Charlie Kaufman, I think, calling him like an asshole or something in an essay. I I, I can't remember. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah, um, I can't remember where the beef comes from, but I hope they can squash the beef because I feel like two of my parents are fighting and it's, it's a bit <laughs> sad. But yeah, Chris Cooper won the Oscar for this one. And I think rightfully so. Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you who else was nominated in that category that year. Nicholas Cage. Now, he was up for Best Actor, and he lost to Adrian Brody, the pianist, who was 29 years old. And to this day, Adrian Brody is the youngest winner of the Academy Award for Best Actor. And I would say that since the pianist, since that Oscar win, not really done anything else on that level. He's had a good career. He was in King Kong. Peter Jackson's King Kong. He had a really good, memorable role in. Uh, what was it? <laughs> yes, memorable. The Grand Budapest Hotel. He was in Peaky Blinders. He's done well, but. The Predators what? film as well, uh, lest we forget. Yeah, I, I think looking at um, him. Yeah, I just remembered how good Predators is, actually. Predators was a good film. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Cage has done better so maybe it's sort of that curse of the the early oscar win of oh he's 29 he's won the oscar he's, he's going to be this big performer now it's very hard to talk about the pianist without sort of you mentioned separating the art from the artist earlier it, it is a roman polanski film and yeah yeah for reasons i won't get into because there's there's tangents and then there's tangents, but Roman Polanski is very much persona non grata, and you can look it up and find out why if you don't know. But The Pianist is a really powerful, moving film, and I know that it's very easy to to say that about Holocaust dramas because by their very nature, because of the subject matter, they they're gonna be moving. But Brody's performance in that film it, it is excellent. Like he really communicates the desperation and the fear and the terror of, of 
being in the situation that he's in. Having said that, the stuff that Cage is doing in this film really, to me, it's the example that I give people when they say Nicolas Cage, he doesn't have range. He's just a loud, shouty guy all the time. That's all he does. Mm-hmm. And I show them this and I say, he's playing two completely different characters in this film, neither of which are anything like the kind of characters he's known to play. Yeah, yeah. And do I think he should have beat Adrian Brody for the Oscar? I don't know. They're two very different performances. I think the Oscars, by their very nature, are sort of... uh, They're kind of flawed because you've got a grade on a curve, like a really good comedy performance and a really good drama performance. How do you really gauge which one is better? It's It's apples and oranges and... I, I kind of like that the Golden Globes separates its acting categories between dramas and comedies. Yeah. Um, which which means that, I could be wrong on this, but Cage and Brody would have been nominated in different categories at the Golden Globes. I don't know if this was submitted for the drama or not at the Golden Globes. I think it was in comedy at uh I think they put they usually put comedy and musical together at the Globes, I think. Yeah, it's a weird one. It is a weird one. But yeah. this also got a screenplay nomination, because uh, it was the follow up it was like a double follow up because it was Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones teaming up and they previously collaborated on being John Malkovich, which ties into the start of this film. Being John Malkovich, that was a big hit. Spike Jones got a Best Director nomination. I believe Kaufman got a screenplay nomination for it. And then the great irony for me is that Adaptation was nominated for the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay because it is technically an adaptation of The Orchid Thief, but it really isn't. Yeah, <laughs> like It's a film about how that book is impossible to adapt. But in doing so, he produced an adapted screenplay that got an Oscar nomination. And yeah. another little tidbit before we delve into it. The credited screenwriters for this film are Charlie and Donald Kaufman. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Really Donald enjoyed Kaufman that. is not a real person. <laughs> he doesn't exist. But he's an Oscar nominee. A, f- a fictional character has been nominated for an Oscar, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, Don't tell me Nicolas Cage can't do it all. He can get a fictional person nominated for a real award. <laughs> Don't you dare tell me he can't do it all. Um, but it was obviously interesting about all, you know, all the um, awards it was nominated for. Um, I was just looking at the, sort of the uh, competition that uh, Chris Cooper had, because um, he seemed to, I think, maybe accept the BAFTA. He uh, had two of the awards for Best Supporting Actor, as you said. Seems to be largely against Ed Harris, uh, Paul Newman, John C. Riley, Dennis Quaid for the films they were in that year. Um, oh, was Paul Newman... Was that Road to Perdition? Uh, Road to Perdition for Paul Newman. Yep. Uh, the Hours, Ed Harris, Chicago, John C. Riley, uh, Far From Heaven, Dennis Quaid. Um, okay. With Nicholas oh, Far Cage. From Heaven. Oh, that's a really good film, actually. <laughs> That's some good competition that year. Yeah, it's um, a Todd Haynes film. It's sorry to get all film nerdy on you, but it's uh, it's like uh, a tribute to the old melodramas of Douglas Sirk, and it's a very beautiful uh, romantic drama with Julianne Moore in it. I highly recommend that if you like love love stories. 
Um, definitely one to check out. I mean, it looks like um, Charlie Kaufman won at the BAFTAs for Best Adapted Screenplay. We um, know good writing. We know the BAFTAs it when get we it right. It. The BAFTAs, they're on the ball. Always have been. <laughs> always will be. Um, with the, I guess, the big three, the um, Oscars, the Golden Globes, the uh, uh, BAFTAs. Uh, Nicholas Cage was up for Best Actor in all three. Um it looks like at the Oscars, as we mentioned, he lost out to Adrian Brody for The Pianist. For the Golden Globes, he lost out to Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt. And Don't agree with that. At the BAFTAs, it was um, Daniel Day-Lewis he lost out to for Gangs of New York. Um, <sighs> and of yeah, course, uh, Meryl Streep, Best Supporting I, Actress yeah. at the Golden Globes as well. I, I, I get it, but like Gangs of New York... It's very much a carry job. I don't know if anyone has seen it, but it's very long and very... Pl- I love Scorsese, but Day-Lewis is the sole highlight of that film. Maybe that played into why he won the awards, because he made it worth watching. I don't know. It's a good performance, but uh, Day-Lewis has three Oscars. Or, like, he can he can share. He He's can got really enough. Share. He's got enough. Three Oscars, five BAFTAs, something ridiculous. I mean, um, aside from that, when we start looking at all the the film festival uh, as well, IMDb says there were 65 wins cumulatively, uh, 100 nominations. Of course, this is including all the film festivals, so uh, various wins um, for screenplay, supporting acting, um, Spike Jonze, uh, Charlie Kaufman get a few in there as well, as they should. Uh, Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper sort of sweeping a lot of supporting uh, categories, but... Um, just the nod for Nicolas Cage, um, which I, I think, you know, obviously I'm going to say he should have won because I am openly biased that he's the greatest actor of our generation. I will never retract that unless he does something heinous like a murder. Even then, <laughs> depends who he murdered and why. Um, yeah, if he broke into a prison and killed Harvey Weinstein, I think I'd, I think that would be worthy of a humanitarian award. Well, he, he should do. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I recently watched Army of One on uh, Amazon Prime, uh, which is the story of the real-life Gary Faulkner, who had a vision from God to go and capture Osama bin Laden. Obviously, this was a role that was Nicolas Cage was born to play. Um, but this was a film, unfortunately, that was... Um, the Weinsteins put their horrible, rapey little hands all over and did a lot of editing. Um, so Nicholas Cage just said he's not sort of happy with the finished product because uh, the director didn't get the final cut and uh, so they had to try and do a lot of editing in camera when they were filming as well but they still got their grubby little Weinstein hands all over it so he should murder Harvey Weinstein I said it, I'll say it again Nicholas Cage deliver us all from evil please I don't think anyone's going to try and cancel you for saying that Harvey Weinstein should die <laughs> I think... there's one person on the planet that deserves it I mean, come on hey, if, if we're looking for the worst of the worst get the fuck out of here that's all I'm saying um, obviously t- talking about sort of acclaim as well um, Rotten Tomatoes, whether you adhere to it or not, 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. This is actually Nicolas Cage's fourth highest rated Rotten Tomato-y film, tying with Raising Arizona and Teen Titans Go to the Movies. I can guess. Is the highest one Spider-Verse? Spider-Verse is definitely one of them. Um, I would have thought that would be the highest one. I think Spider-Verse was up there... um, 
trying to think of what the other one was. I think Leaving Las Vegas might have been up there as well. Um, Red Rock West, that was up there, actually. That was huh. up there. Um, yes, so it's from sort of first... Actually, I'll do it the other, other way around to build build tension, obviously, even though I've already given one of them away. Uh, adaptation was number four with 91%. Uh, Face Off, 92% Whoa. in third. Uh, Moonstruck, 94% in second. Okay. And the one, obviously, I've already mentioned, Red Rock West, 95%. Um, I think if we're talking about underrated Cage films, that's definitely up there. That was, that's a really good film, uh, Red Rock West. One of those... Um, actually, going back to Toshimaku, something you said as well, when you want to show films to people that prove and get this, let's be honest, ridiculous argument out of the way that Nicolas Cage can't act. Adaptation. Bullshit. Bollocks is what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, adaptations up there. Red Rock West is up there. Uh, Matchstick Men as well for me. That has to be in the contention of these are the Bring- films that prove to you he can he can act. Bringing Out the Dead. The Bring- only time he's collaborated with Scorsese. I know. Um, and didn't I think that was the only only Scorsese film of the nineties that didn't get any award attention. Um, Which is ridiculous because however it's really good. <laughs> I know. Better I than like- Gangs in New York. I'll tell you that. Fuck you, Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this has become the anti-Daniel Day-Lewis podcast. Yeah, I'm, I think if I cancel as many other people as I can before they come for me, take as many people down with me as possible. Didn't Mandy and Phantom Thread come out in the same year? I think they oh, did. Oh, we can get... If I come back for Mandy, we can do a whole Mandy versus Phantom Thread thing. Oh, and don't think I don't think I won't. I'll take. I'd love. I'm very protective of Mandy. I think it's a wonderful, fantastic film. Um, Phantom Thread's bloody good as well, actually. So I should probably. I mean, he had. He had. It's weird. 2018 for Cage because he kicked it off chronologically with Mandy, which sort of um, launched a lot of. I think of his love for, especially as we're seeing now, horror as a genre for him to go into. Cosmic um, horror, especially. Cosmic horror. Um, obviously, we've got Color Out of Space. We've got Willy's Wonderland coming up this year as well. Um, but in the same year of 2018, not only did we get Teen Titans go to the movies and Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, we also got the film 211, which is, um, as it stands, the only film that Nicolas Cage has ever disowned. So wow. um That's a low bar to clear as well. It's weird, strange year, 2018. Strange year, by, uh, by all accounts. But This um, guy was in Deadfall. <laughs> and that's the film he disowned. It's... I mean, yeah, it's like... One, it's, it's, it's like... You can make the argument that there are some films maybe he should have distanced himself to a while ago. Deadfall, though, weirdly, as bizarre and trash as it is, Nicolas Cage, it's such a bad film that Nicolas Cage is the only redeeming thing about it because he's so over the top in it. And um, to this like day, Daniel Day Lewis in Gangs of New York. So yeah, more like Daniel Day, Daniel Day Deadfall. Um, we've established their actors of equal value. Exactly. Nicolas Cage's character in Deadfall uh, equal to, or less than, no, more than Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs of New York. Um, what was the number one Rotten Tomatoes film? We never we never established that. Uh, the number one Rotten Tomatoes film for, for Cage, was that, sorry? Yeah, was it Into the Spider-Verse? Uh, Red Rock West. Oh, well, oh, 
Where's uh, Mr. Spider-Verse? I'm surprised. I could have sworn that was... Um, that was... Um, actually, that I wonder if it's if it's not there because he's, he's more of a supporting role in it. Oh, if it's it, his lead roles they're going by. I think so. If it was there, that actually has 93%, so that would have come... Uh, third, it's actually the same with the Crudes and New Age, ninety-four percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So, a lot of animated films would be in his top five. I think if we were going solely on everything he's been in, um, so I think we sort of take it with, you know, Rotten Tomatoes. You sort of take it with a pinch of salt, but um, adaptation, like you're saying, should be up there. I'm sort of looking into this on sort of box office mojo as well because that keeps like a chronological history of films and their box office performances. This one sort of when it released in um, 2002, December 6th, barely registered at the box office. This flew under a lot of radars. It debuted at number 17 in the box office um, unable to top Die Another Day, which was in its second week at the box office at number one. And it released the same week as Analyze That and Empire, which both charted higher. Um, So it's by all accounts, didn't move the needle. Had a budget of 19 million. Box office takings were around uh, 32.8 million, just shy of 33. So, like I said, a fantastic film that's um, got the nominations and awards um, viewings, which quite rightly it should have had, but uh, there just just didn't seem to be an audience for it. Um, I do feel bad for the marketing department because how do you, how would you? I've never seen the original trailer, but how do you market a f- you, you can't market a film like this because it's not really a wacky comedy. It's a an introspective meta-drama about the creative process and how difficult screen... Like, the bullshit of screenwriting, essentially, is what this film is about. <laughs> and that's yeah. going to only appeal to a small niche, which, going kind of contradicting what I said earlier, I can see why the awards buffs would go for it because it's about the industry. Yeah. Like with Birdman. Birdman won Best Picture and Best Director and all these awards. And uh, while it was a fantastic film, it was very much about the industry of acting and of production. So stuff like that tends to rub the Academy the right way. Yeah. Having said that, being John Malkovich, that got Oscar nominations... Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which Kaufman wrote. He won an Oscar for that, for his script. So, yeah, maybe they just like him. Maybe he's one of the few incredibly talented people that the Oscars have actually legitimately recognised. Maybe. It might be one of those things where, you know, every when we get those, um, those Kaufman works that come out, as you said, being John Malkovich, which serves as a bit of a backdrop to this film in adaptation, Eternal Sunshine, The Spotless Mind. Most recently, I'm thinking of Ending Things of Netflix, which, to my shame, I, I still haven't got around to watching yet. Me neither. I need um, to be in the right mood for it. Yeah. it look, um, I, I feel really lazy when I say this about films, but it's like, this seems like a film I need to pay attention to. You should pay attention to all films um, realistically, but... I, you have background movies, though, sense. like... If I just want to stick on the Fast and the Furious in the background while I'm doing something else, it's like, yeah. it's like a podcast. It's like a podcast film where you just sort of, I'm sort of throwing ourselves under the bus here. <laughs> <But> <laughs> throw away. Don't throw most away. people throw a podcast on when they 
when they do other stuff like I, I i like to put podcasts on when i go for my walks for example no one just sits down and listens to two hours of podcast maybe they if you do that's cool yeah i mean if you if you sit down and this is part of your day just like me you're ill uh but thank <laughs> you <laughs> all the same uh i mean i'm, I'm the same I, I if i'm i say if i'm when I used to travel to work, I would put a podcast on. And even now when I'm working from home, it's um, sometimes just nice to have a bit of podcast in the background, a bit of company um, and all of that. But like you said, um, this sort of the, the arc and the narrative of this, it, it, it's like it's a story and then a story within a story and then some elements, they've got flashbacks of the stories within the stories and when you tried to describe it, I tried to describe this to my partner because she's like, oh, why is there, why are there two Nicolas Cages? My first answer was, was because, because of course every film should have two Nicolas Cages. Um, when I tried to explain it, it's like, well, he's a writer and his brother's trying to be a writer and he's trying to adapt this unadaptable novel, but then um, we've got the story within a story about the novel being made and then there's flashbacks of that. She's like, you know what, I think that's a bit complex. You've lost like, me. I'm out of here. Yeah, and I was like, understandably, it's a, it's, it's a difficult one to describe. And on paper, I think in, in the hands of um, a lesser writer uh, and a lesser director, in the very capable hands of Spike Jones with this one. Everything... Sorry, I need to stop you. It is pronounced Jones. It's important. Oh, it's, it's, it's like it's GIF, GIF, isn't it? Yeah, it's important to me that you know that despite the weird-ass spelling, it's pronounced Jones. I will edit this out and make myself look fucking brilliant. Uh, Spike. So, in the capable hands of Spike Jones. In the capable um, hands of Spike Lee. Fuck. In the other of Spike Spiegel from Cowboy Bebop. Um, in the capable hands of Spike Jones. Uh, my apologies, and um, that's what's going to get me cancelled. Fucking Daniel Day Lewis. Um, it's a film that it could easily fall apart because there's a there is a, a lot of things going on. Um, but watching it, it everything worked. It all made sense. I didn't feel lost when I was watching it. I could keep with it. Um, and and looking into the film as well, obviously, as we touched on, this was based on Charlie Kaufman's real struggle to adapt The Orchid Thief. So he brought himself into the screenplay and then it became a screenplay about him struggling to write a screenplay about an, an adaptation. So the film um, we're watching just becomes the film that we're watching. It's, it's like very a beautiful, odd. It's a weird experience. It's weird, and then you start... You see the elements um, when he's like, oh, we need to put this in, I need to tie all of history together to write about flowers. And he's like, we need to go through the creation of mankind, and it's like that montage you see at the start with all sort of like the, the lava and the dinosaurs and everything. It's like, oh, the thing that happened at the start of the film he's mentioning now, he's, he's making this. We're watching him create this film. We're watching this film originate in front of our eyes. Um, he he said as well that um, apparently, and I think this is what they sort of touch upon in the film with his, I think it's his agent or something saying, yeah, it's been 13 weeks, 14 weeks, and we haven't seen anything, so we need to get that script over. Um, it's my life. <laughs> basically. <laughs> we, we've, seen, we've seen that blank page and the, the flish, uh, flashing cursor before. Um, but he added the elements, obviously the fictional twin brother, exaggerated other elements, and apparently he didn't show the producers a finished script until he handed them the script of the film wow. that we saw, because apparently um, 
he'd made so many drastic changes to I think what he expected they wanted um, he feared that they would reject the idea um, and even though Spike Jones uh, supported it um, Kaufman believed that this would actually end his career uh, how wrong he was um, but you get that backdrop and a lot of the neuroses you see in the film make even more poignant sense um, of his struggle. He's quite literal beads of sweat. The hatred he has towards himself, saying, like, you're a fat, ugly loser. The self-doubt, um, sort of the, <laughs> the folly of man, almost. But um, it was just, just, like I said, a wonderful, weird experience watching this film. Um, there was uh, the angst, and I think this is a lot of credit to Cage as well, but the anxiety was palpable in so in so much of it. Um, so it was just wonderful, wonderful performances all round. Um, and I'm, you know, now I am a huge fan of this film. A lot of Cage films I sort of watch and think, okay, I'm glad I watched it. Um, obviously, in some ways, I'm obligated to watch it, but this is one of the few I came away from. I was like, I want to watch this again. I want to watch it a second time. See if there's anything like a mist that I can sort of pick up on again, but. Um, and as, as you said again last time we we, we chat, this is you know top tier film in in the Cage archives for you. Um, I guess, and hopefully not to make this sound like a too much of a a, a lardy dar kind of question, but how did it sort of make you sort of feel? I guess when you're sort of watching it and going through these motions that he's going through. I think the main conceit of the film is obviously the struggle of the creative process. I think for me, because I'm such a big fan of, uh, I really like old movies. Uh, I really like, you know, like Hitchcock stuff and stuff that uses a lot of visual cues to to tell the story. And we've talked a lot about Kaufman, and I I understand that because this film's about him, people see it as his film. But Spike Jones is doing some really good work with this as well. He's an Academy Award winner in his own right. He wrote and directed Her, which is yeah. a brilliant film, Joaquin Phoenix in. He won a screenplay Oscar for that. He's an immensely talented man. Started out with Jackass, which is wild to me. He was one of the co-creators yeah. of Jackass. I'm, which... I'm glad you brought that up because for the longest time, I only knew him from Jackass. Wow. Um, Not the cause... acclaimed filmmaker that makes amazing music videos no. and documentaries. and no. Um, man. It's like I think so. Obviously, when I was growing up, Jackass was a huge thing if you were a guy because it had to be. Um, and I remember seeing his name because, as you've evidenced, I didn't know how to say it. I was like, "Oh, that's a unique name. You don't see that every day." Um, but I knew him from that. I was where he'd worked on the Jackass films, but um, I don't claim to be a film buff uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and that's. That for me, that's where I know him from 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 the uh, from the Jackass series of MTV fame. I mean, he's only directed four feature-length fictional films, so it's not difficult to go through his filmography. So there's been John Malkovich adaptation, Where the Wild Things Are, and Her, and then I think last year he directed a Beastie Boys documentary, which I've not watched because it's an Apple TV exclusive, and I'm not a millionaire. But <laughs> I think with adaptation, what Spike Jones is able to do is, I think most directors would look at the script for this film and think, I can't. They'd have a Kaufman 
sort of <laughs> sense of doubt. They'd be like, I can't adapt this. This is unfilmable. This is ridiculous. It, this is one of those scripts that everyone would pass around. There's there's a thing in Hollywood called the Blacklist, which is a list of the 100 best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood, and it gets put out every year. And there's just these films that, for whatever reason, don't get made, but everyone agrees the script is hot shit, and when it gets made, it'll be great. Hmm. An adaptation feels like it would be one of those where... All the agents and producers in Hollywood would be passing it around going, have you read this, the Kaufman script, the guy that did the, the Malkovich movie? It's fantastic. And then every director that it got sent to would read it and go, yeah, it's good, but I can't film this. But Spike Jones, I think he... On the one hand, I like that the two of them split. So Jones went off and now directs his own stuff. Kaufman has directed three feature-length films. Uh, Synodoc New York, which is brilliant albeit very weird. Anna Lisa, which I haven't seen, and I'm thinking of ending things, which I also haven't seen. So I like that their paths have diverged and they've proved that they can make it on their own. But this was the last time they collaborated on something, and I wish they'd they'd reunite and do something else because Jones has this way of capturing the wacky zaniness of it all. And structurally, this film is sort of a mess but i feel like that's by design so for me as a film nerd who likes the older things like the hitchcock stuff and vertigo and stuff like that there's a lot of pattern recognition in this film and a lot of it is this design of well these are tricks that screenwriters use and I'm telling you that these are tricks that screenwriters use, but then I'm showing you the tricks as they happen. This whole film is like a magician explaining the trick while doing another trick. It's like a Penn and Teller type of yeah. thing. And so asking me how it makes me feel, it makes me feel like just sort of blown away that there's something like this that can exist. It does make me feel a bit smart watching it as well, which I think a lot of screenwriters that when they write complicated films, they kind of want that. They want their audience to get it and feel like they worked something out. I feel like Christopher Nolan does that a lot where it's like, oh, this is kind of complex but accessible so people will watch it and think they're smart for getting it. It's a little trick that screenwriters play on you and it works a lot. Emotionally... I, I am invested in this film. I think that it's very brave the way that Charlie Kaufman writes himself in this as just this honestly quite in many ways dislikable guy, which I think is why Donald was invented because Donald's lovely. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. He's an yeah. idiot, but that's what the film is telling you is that you can be the smartest guy in the room you can be this genius that can write these things that no one else can write. You can think these thoughts that no one else can come up with, but you can still be a socially reclusive wanker that no one gets on with. Yeah. And like, if you're not happy and if you're not loved, then does it even matter that you've got all this brilliance if no one cares about you? Yeah. I, I think that's quite a beautiful message of the film as well, beyond the whole meta narrative stuff, just the very simple choice of these two brothers one is a genius but a dick one's an idiot but has a heart of gold i know which one i'd rather be friends with 10 times out of 10 and that's the idiot with a heart of gold 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's obviously something you touched upon there. Sort of one of the very poignant messages of the film um, is something that Donald says at the end uh, when they're being pursued by John and Susan that um, you are what you love, not what loves you. Um, that's what I decided a long time ago. So I think it's it's, it's sort of coming to that sort of comfortable place with yourself as well. That if you can sort of, I guess, find the things that you love, and then that that's sort of all that matters really in trying to make all these films about um well i suppose as charlie's trying to do he's so focused on trying to make a film about a flower trying to do this like beautiful thing that um he's making such difficult work for himself but it's uh not until he comes to that place of uh acceptance with himself and um the brothers are almost kind of i, I guess it's this sort of the yin and yang of charlie calvin really sort of the two opposing sides of himself and it's um it's so it's so well done because obviously they're identical twins and it could have been i guess easy to make them very similar but they're so distinct in their in their personalities um sort of different yet the same in in many aspects um and obviously Donald being the fictional brother um obviously what I'm about to get into is it's obviously a spoiler for the end of the film which I think by this point, if, you, if you're not aware that the spoilers are discussed in this podcast, then what are you doing? Um, when Donald does die at the end, that that got me. That was really that was really affecting. Um, I think I think I mentioned very briefly to you before we went and record that this is the first time pre-record that I've ever seen this film, so I didn't know anything about it going into it other than what I briefly researched. Um, but yeah, it's such a heartbreaking death at the end. Uh, and he's sort of singing like imagine me you're new to his brother trying to keep him awake it's um you know like i'm I'm just there sort of like my, my food going like <clears throat> just trying to like keep it together i was like god damn this uh i wasn't expecting it that that got me um but it's like I say, such brilliant again i can't i can't like not uh not praise the acting enough in this um and again, you know, like I say, um, with the with the supporting cast as well, so strong all around. Um, you were talk- touching upon sort of, uh, Joaquin Phoenix early there as well. He nearly had Chris Cooper's role of John LaRoche. Um, Interesting. He nearly got the part, but he actually had a meeting towards the end of, I guess, like pre-production with uh, Spike and said, look, I'm wrong for the part. He took himself out of the running. It then goes to Chris Cooper, and he gets the uh, the awards as well. So, um. I I think from an acting standpoint, Phoenix could have done it, but I think having an older guy like Cooper was. I think Cooper was in his early to mid forties. Don't, don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure he's like late fifties, early sixties now. And I think having an older guy and that someone closer to Meryl's, him and Meryl Street being similar in age really works. And I think at that point, Phoenix, he was just coming off Gladiator. He was this fresh-faced sort of new kid on the block. Who is this guy? He's, he's this really good actor. Oh, he's, he's actually River Phoenix's brother and he's really talented and he's going to be the, the next big thing. And yeah, I think Phoenix made the right choice there. I, I think Cooper brings a real delicacy to the role uh, 
and I guess like like an orchid, you know, he's sort of the reflection of that. He he, I love. I guess we'll get in. It's how to go through uh, this. Our discussion of the film has not really been as chronological as it was for Con Air, but <laughs> yeah. Con Air is a plot-driven, high-concept action thriller. Adaptation by its very nat- nature, like the book that it's based on, is broad, it's sprawling. Structurally, it's very odd. It's hard to go through this film beat by beat and break it down because it is it is a collection of moments. But I love towards the start of the film where you first meet John LaRoche where he's going through the swamp and he's got the Native Americans with him and they find the orchid and they, they, they don't rip it out of the branch they, they they cut the branch off and they carry it back with them and they get stopped by uh, I, I guess like a gamekeeper like a warden um, yeah um... and he says you can't, you can't take stuff off this land and LaRoche talks about how there was a court case between a local native man and how technically this is not this land is not historically the property of the state it's the property of the local native tribe so as long as they take the orchids and he doesn't physically touch them he's legally in the clear and that's how he's stayed out of jail for so long for essentially stealing public property I really like that. It establishes straight away he's he's an educated man. He's he's a well-read man. He's not this country hick idiot, which is sadly a preconception that a lot of people, including Meryl Streep's character, make about him when they meet him. Yeah. And the film, like at the very, very beginning, we've got the Nicolas Cage voiceover. We've got the sort of 2001 A Space Odyssey evolution of man kind of sequence starts with nothingness and then ends with the birth of a baby. There's a brilliant gag in the film where it shows lava and volcanoes and it just says Hollywood, California (laughs) 3.5 billion years ago or something. Yeah. (laughs) That got a laugh out of me. I I forgot about that gag. That's a very funny joke. Um, And we start with like handheld footage on the set of being John Malkovich, John Malkovich himself is there. It's this, if you haven't seen being John Malkovich, there's a scene. Well, first of all, the film is about a portal. And if you climb through it, you're in the head of John Malkovich. Yeah. It's weird. Go with (laughs) me on this, but there's a scene in that film, spoiler alert, where John Malkovich himself climbs through that portal. And he ends up in a world where everybody is John Malkovich. So the film starts with John Malkovich on set and he's surrounded by extras dressed up as John Malkovich. And if you haven't seen that film and you sit down and watch this film, it's not going to make any sense whatsoever what's going on. And it's documentary style. You see the first assistant director, the cinematographer, and then we meet Charlie Kaufman, only it's not Charlie Kaufman. It's Nicolas Cage playing Charlie Kaufman. So straight away we we know, oh, okay, this is set in the real world, but it's an odd parallel world where the stuff is the same, but, but a bit different. And then he goes home. We meet his brother, Donald, who's writing a screenplay. And I kind of... I kind of get Charlie's resentment of Donald because 
he feels like Donald's trying to step on his toes and do a thing he's not fit to do. And he, he's thought, well, if my brother can do it, then I can do it. But at the same time, he could at least be supportive of him. You know, it, it's, yeah. it really upsets me how... I think that's why Donald's death is so tragic, is that for the majority of the film, Charlie is really cold to him. Yeah. Uh, Donald loves Charlie with all his heart. He well, admires him. He walks on. Yeah. He's a hero to him. And all, all he wants, I think, is just... Um, obviously, I think as we see towards the end of the film, he's not as oblivious as he might come across, but all he wants is um, to write his uh, sort of thriller screenplay, The Three, I think it's called. Oh, it's brilliant. So this is the the element of the meta-narrative that I really like. So... Have you, have you seen the film Identity, James Mangold film? No, no, I haven't. Basically, that film, which I'm pretty sure came out after this one, is very similar to the film that Donald writes. So Identity is about like six people, and it's a slasher flick, and they get picked off one by one. And then at the end, the twist is that it's all taking place in one person's head. and Right. It's the classic, uh, I want to say multiple personality disorder twist, but... Multiple personality disorder, if I just want to get on my soapbox a bit here, that's not the name of the condition. It's called Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID. Uh, multiple personality disorder is a very outdated term. It's considered to be quite offensive, actually. So, uh, you know, maybe just try and say DID for the sake of uh, consideration. But Donald's writing a script... <laughs> where he wants the final twist to be that the killer, his victim, and the cop trying to find them are all the same person. And as he describes it to Charlie, Charlie just goes, okay, have you considered the logistics of how this guy can be a girl being kept in a pit somewhere (laughs) and also a cop working in a police station? And Donald doesn't get why that's a problem at all. He's like, yeah, but that's the big twist. And it's like, and he's yeah. just not getting it. Uh, but the great irony is, is that this film uses more than one personality as a, as a plot device because of the existence of Donald. Donald's not a real person in our world. He's a real person in the nature of the film, but... In the film, he is representing a fragmentation of Charlie Kaufman's personality. Well, there's two ways of reading it. You can you can see Donald as a separation of elements of who Charlie is, or you could go another way and see him as Charlie expressing what he wishes he was. I think there's two ways yeah. of, of reading into it. Yeah, I'd agree maybe it's with a that. bit of both, but. That's the, that's what I say about this film being both conventional and unconventional in that it uses the trope of the multiple personalities of of taking one person and expanding them into many. It uses that trope, but then it also breaks down for you succinctly why that trope doesn't work ever and has never worked. <laughs> it didn't work in Fight Club. It kind of worked in Split, but most of the time it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's um the way they they 
I think obviously Charlie's sort of deconstructing a number of things. Obviously, he's saying that, oh, you know, you're talking about, um, as he says in the film, multiple personality disorder. You haven't thought about the logistics. It's lazy. Everyone does it. But then later, when he goes, he finally goes to that three day um, seminar with Robert McKee and very sheepishly says, you know, how am I supposed to write when nothing happens in the world? And then Robert just loses his shit. It's oh, like it's there's brilliant. wars, there's famine, there's so much shit going on in the world. And you're going to tell me there's nothing. And, he, and he's, uh, as he's going through the voiceover on the road, he's saying, what am I doing here? I'm a loser. I shouldn't be here. I should be home going with the script. And he's like, and voiceover is lazy. I don't want to catch any of you using voiceover. And then it just stops. Um, I thought that was really, really wonderful as well. Um, it's a great cameo. Brian Cox walks in, steals the show, leaves. What more can you say? Outstanding. Tears, tears the house down and says, God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friend. And um, then as he afterwards, when he has the drink with him at the bar, um, he gives him the inspiration, is, um, or at least some inspiration. He says, um, you've got to put drama, work backwards, you've got to put drama into your script, you've got to find the ending, don't you dare bring in a deus ex machina, um, and the change must come from the characters. And he does all well. of those things that he tells him not to do. <laughs> Lights a fire underneath him for um for better or for better or worse, but like I said, what wonderful um, cameo. But it does inspire him to start working with um, Donald because, like, hey, the people who wrote Casablanca, you know, they were they were twins, they were brothers as well. So he casts his eye over it. Um, that that leads to them um, sort of following Susan out to Miami. Um, he, obviously, with Charlie's been putting off speaking to Susan, the author of The Orchid Thief, um, he just can't bring himself to do it. So um, I really enjoyed... I really love the scene where Donald goes as Charlie to interview Susan, um, and then he's just like, I thought I felt an attraction in the subtext cat comment, and then just puts like the pen to his mouth, and then she's like, um, well, not really. Um, you know, there's, there's always a relationship between your interviewee and interviewer. And then he gets her with the question, uh, living or dead, who would you invite to dinner? It's like, oh, I guess Jesus and Einstein. And then instantly he's like, she's lying. She's absolutely lying. That inspires him to spy on her. They follow her out to Miami and sort of confirm that she's um, basically having an affair with, uh, with John LaRoche as well, leading to the climax we were touching on earlier. This is what I like about the film's structure is the first two acts leading up to the finale are almost self-contained stanzas. You're cutting between Charlie's life of him having this sort of newfound fame, I guess, after being John Malkovich. Everyone wants to know what he's going to do next. He's unsuccessfully trying to pursue relationships. He's so unbelievably socially awkward. There's, oh my God, one of the hardest scenes to ever watch in anything ever. He's at a diner and he meets a waitress there and she sees him reading The Orchid Thief. She's like, oh, I love orchids. (laughs) Then we cut to in his brain of her leading him into a forest, kissing him. She takes her top off and then as she's doing that, cut to Nicolas Cage, hog in hand, masturbating (laughs) in his bedroom. And not for the first time. Yeah, and a number of times, um, obviously, we we cut to uh, the th- the visual thought in his head that the 
the way he's quantifying stuff is is he's just making love he's making love to the um uh, Tilda Swinton's character who's in charge of the ad, uh, the adaptation um to Meryl Streep's character instead of interviewing her the waitress um, a lot of a lot of the way that he deals with stuff is just by whipping his hog out jerking himself raw um and hopefully not getting interrupted by Donald about his uh about his screenplay um, his screenplay that is psychologically taught um, but yeah he goes back to the diner and the waitress is nicer to him because you know I'm I'm going to give a PSA now just for people that maybe don't quite get how social interactions work but waiting staff are polite to you because it's their job to be polite to you Yeah, <laughs> and they're probably nice people but 99.99% of the time they're not trying to be your friend they're not looking for you to ask them out it's just just leave them alone just leave them be let them do their thing yeah. and no one gave Charlie Kaufman that memo so maybe I can prevent this situation <laughs> from happening if you... but he he's he's going to an orchid show to learn more about them and he oh god he asks her if she wants to go and she just has this mortified look on her face like yeah and he's got he instantly realizes that he's fucked up and he goes oh i'm really sorry and she just walks off and that scene just sums up charlie in a nutshell it's like oh dude like i understand that you really want a partner and a companion but you 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 don't you don't do people and i've i've his films do make me wonder how he views because i believe he's I believe he's married. Pretty sure I think he's so. married. Married with kid, I believe, from over yeah, Wikipedia. His wife must watch his films and wonder because his probably his most famous script, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, is about a couple who erase each other from the other person's memories. <laughs> like they <laughs> they fall out so badly that they actually brainwash each other so they don't have to think about each other again. Uh yeah, being John Malkovich is that film is about really toxic relationships. A lot of the characters in his film are films are quite emotionally stunted and not good with with other people. So, God knows how he managed to get married. I, I don't. I'm not trying to insult him. I'm just so I don't know the guy <laughs> as a person, but just based on his work and how he depicts himself in this film. Yeah. Maybe he turned on the Donald charm. Maybe he switches to Donald with people. Maybe that's what he does. Maybe that's what it is. Like I say, the sort of um, Jekyll Hyde, Yin Yang um, existence of Kaufman, you know. Um, or I suppose if there's anything to be gleaned from that, I'm coming for Daniel Day-Lewis. You're apparently coming for Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> We're picking our fights in 2020. One of my favourite screenwriters, and I've just decided that I'm going to fight him. That's what's happening. I probably some... win. He doesn't look like he can throw hands. <laughs> you've watched. You you've got a lot of UFC MMA knowledge under your belt, which I think would come in handy. Oh god, those um, are the worst. I'm telling you now. People that watch combat sports and think they can fight. Oh gee, they are the worst people. I mean, um, I've I've only got a lot of a lifetime of wrestling under my belt. So when I you know I'm locking, <laughs> I'm collar and elbow tie up with the in a fight. Then yeah, uh, you, try, instantly... you tried a whole cup and no cell, and you're like. This... Why isn't this working? Why can't I still feel pain? 
I'm being hit with a lead pipe and it still breaks my everything. <laughs> and I'm still in a coma. <laughs> what, what the hell? This isn't how the fictional sports told me life would go at all. <laughs> Damn you, Woolworths VHS WF t- tape section. Uh, oh, rest in peace, down. Woolworths. Oh, God. Rest in peace, the Woolworths pick and mix. Rest oh, in peace, man. the Wally. only place you could get a, a WWF VHS tape back in the day. Um, I remember when I got, and this is I know, a tangent here, Royal Rumble 2000, arguably one of the greatest oh, pay-per-views. The, oh my God, not the that's best. the best Royal Rumble show ever. Uh, got that on VHS, watched it religiously, um, had WrestleMania 16 with a double feature. I, I want to say it was No Mercy from 1999. No was reason U- those two pay-per-views. Was that the I think UK it was the one? UK one. Yeah. I no reason those two pay-per-views should have been combined in that box set, but here we are. Uh, WrestleMania 17, for many, one of the, one of the top WrestleManias. Um, and then there was... I remember as well, uh, I think my mum got me... Uh, went to get me like a, a VHS gift. I, I don't know what the occasion was or if I'd done something to earn it. But she just saw the tape... Um, Obviously, saw WF like, well, that's wrestling. Uh, little did I know the context of it until many years later. She brought, I want to say, somewhere between the realms of, let's ballpark, 10 years old, 11 years old. She brought me Beyond the Map on VHS. Oh, God. Um, I watched it, thought, oh, maybe there's just some interviews. I'm sure the wrestling's going to start no. at some point. Two hours later, 10-year-old Daryl was very confused and very upset. Yeah, so um, for anyone listening that has no clue about pro wrestling, first of all, I apologise for everything we just said. <laughs> Second of all, yep. Beyond the <laughs> is on Netflix. And it is, yeah, of course. Oh my god, if you've not seen it, it is a documentary. It follows mainly professional wrestler Mick Foley, but it, it follows a, f- a few different wrestlers. It's one of the only times where the WWF slash E has really allowed an outside crew of filmmakers in to to film them. And really, this documentary is one of the main reasons why they don't let outsiders in anymore, because it does not present them in a favourable light at all. It really delves into the politics of pro wrestling, how painful it is, how barbaric an industry it is, and... Oh my god, I can't think of a worse way to have the magic of pro wrestling killed for a child. <laughs> yeah. That's that's like showing a a child fucking like a child who loves the idea of Christmas. It's like showing Krampus. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> that level. It was I think I I think I'm and I hope I was uh to, 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 just to pull a term here, just in that realm of innocence enough that I was able to block a lot of it from my head and not fully process for the better, I think, what it was that I'd watched. Um, but, you know, um, mistakes were made. I didn't watch it again. Uh, I went back to Royal Rumble 2000 and let just let the good times take me away. I let Cactus Jack versus Triple H in that street fight just take me to happier oh, places. Um but that, but that's harrowing. WWF tangent aside, um, like we've been saying, it's this film difficult to describe, but it makes so much sense when you follow it. Meryl Streep has said this was her favorite screenplay that she's 
um, ever read. Uh, wow. Chris Cooper, I, th- I thought, was brilliant as well. I think it wasn't until one of his second or third scenes where they're in the, I think, like a botanical gardens or something, and he's um, talking to Susan about how sort of um, like the the bee and the flower, they find each other. Their sort of whole purpose is to sort of come together and they never really realise it. When he sort it was that scene that sort of, it clicked to me and I was like, um, yeah, this this is why he won awards. This it, The delicacy you mentioned earlier that he brought to the role, the sensitivity, which when he first came on screen and he was being sort of accosted by the sheriff, I had that preconceived notion in my mind. Like, oh, I, I know what we're going to get. Flipped it on its head. The dimensions of the character were just changed for me. I think it was by this barometer, they show us how to live. That was when Chris Cooper was like, yeah, fuck yes, this is incredible. I'm in. I'm so fucking in on all of this. Um, and obviously, I think the the uh, the history books of sort of films and uh, filmmaking sort of agree as well. Um, various accolades, also including Roger Ebert's great movies list, Stephen Schneider's 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die, a uh, 2005 survey, the Writers Guild of America said it was the 77th best screenplay ever written, and as well, the BFI, um, British Film Institute, noted adaptation as one of its 30 best films of the 2000s as well. So, um, a lot of high praise. It's a one of the of best praise. films you've never heard of, I think. It's one of those yeah. where a lot of people have no idea what it is. But in certain circles, it is heralded as, as something great. And I think... Going back to the structure of it, when we start with those first two acts of the little self-contained stanzas, that's all the process of Charlie trying to write the script. And it flicks between him and the adaptation of The Orchid Thief of Susan and John's relationship developing or blossoming, if you will. And it switches between a conventional love story and a guy desperately trying not to write something conventional. And it all comes to a head at the end where, because at the very beginning of the film, he says, I don't want to write something that's plot driven. And until the Swinton says, I have no idea what that means, but okay. (laughs) And adaptation as a film for most of it is not plot driven. And then at the end, all of a sudden, it switches and becomes like a high concept thriller <laughs> where Charlie <laughs> yeah. and Donald team up and they spy on these people and they go after them. And Oh my God, they've been kidnapped and captured and there's sex and there's violence and they inject the drama. He does what he was told to do by Brian Cox. The ending of the film is coming up. Not a whole lot has happened. Bam, it switches and becomes dramatic. And I think if any other film did that, Critics would look at it and go, this film is real. has a real issue with tone. It's very uneven. It doesn't know what it wants to be. But yeah, again, yeah. because this film is about not knowing what the film has to be, that's the only way the film can be. It, it works because of the meta element. And we get that payoff of that there's something I noticed that I'd never noticed before, but there's a bit in the film where Donald says, oh, I printed out the Ten Commandments of screenwriting and, and 
put them up on our walls so we can use them when we work. Yeah. And uh, I, I looked at the, the only like the top three or four are visible. And the third commandment is dramatize your exposition. And at the very start of the film, when John is going through the swamp, the camera focuses on the alligators in the swamp for a few seconds. And unbeknownst to us until the film is over, that is exposition being dramatized because at the very end of the film, there's been a chase. Donald has, has sadly been killed. And John LaRoche is, and Susan, that they're, they're chasing Charlie through the swamp. And John has Charlie cornered. He's got his rifle trained on him. And a fucking alligator <laughs> attacks yeah. him and saves Charlie. And it goes back to the conversation that he has with Brian Cox, who says, don't you dare use a deus ex machina. <laughs> and uh, for people who don't know what a deus ex machina is, I'm going to get really wanky right now. It's it. Latin. It means God from the machine. And it's a narrative device where characters are put in an, an inescapable or, or unwinnable situation. And some kind of act of God, if you will, something completely out of their control saves them. It solves the problem. Mm -hmm. I'd say the best known example of this that a lot of people make fun of is the end of Return of the King, where Sam and Frodo are stuck on Mount Doom. They're about to sink into the lava and burn and die. And you're thinking, oh, God, oh, no, they're, they're screwed. And then the eagles come in and they, they carry them off and they save them. And people have made fun of that moment for a long time. But I, I, I think it's a good, effective moment. Uh, I, I think people are really unfair on it for some reason. It's... It's a fantasy film and it's a fantasy trope. Leave it alone. But yeah, sure enough, he disobeys the rules of screenwriting. And at the very end of this film, he is about to die. There's nothing he can do. And an alligator that he has no control over, no relationship with, just jumps up and grabs John. And sure enough, the exposition of the alligator earlier in the film was dramatised. So I'd, I'd be interested to read those Ten Commandments of screenwriting from Brian Cox, because I'm willing to bet money that adaptation as a film subscribes to every one of those rules, <laughs> but then also breaks them. I, I, I reckon that might be a thing in there because this film is the most Charlie Kaufman film ever in that it celebrates the lack of rules in screenwriting, but then it's the least Charlie Kaufman film ever because it really strictly adheres to them. But it does that to show you how flawed the idea of, of screenwriting is. And there's a, a great bit in it when he's talking with Donald and Donald goes, well, these are the rules of screenwriting. And he's like, There's no rules to screenwriting as well. I'm going to pitch my script later. Don't say pitch. Don't say industry. <laughs> Stop using these buzzwords that I hate. And yes, as I'm yeah. watching it, I'm thinking, on the one hand, I agree with you. Art shouldn't be policed and pigeonholed and boxed in. People should be free to express themselves. But on the other hand, sometimes you can get so far up your own ass that you completely lose sight of things. And between watching a film where zero happens about flowers and a thriller with a serial killer, a cop and a victim that are all the same person, only one of those films is going to bring in the books at the box office and only one of those films is going to really resonate with audiences. 
And I don't think this film is trying to demean or look down on high concept stuff, um, which is an easy message to take away from it. I think what this film is trying to say is that you need to respect the craft of screenwriting, regardless of what you're writing. And at the end of the film, Charlie does come to respect Donald and he does realize actually Donald is happy and he's, he's poured everything into the script and that's what matters. And there's a bit where he's, where Charlie's talking to his agent and the agent goes, Oh, I got your brother's script. It's the best fucking script I've read all year. <laughs> and Charlie's like, what? What? You, I can't believe it. Like I, all the stuff I do for you and this is the best script, but it's like, well, you know what? You, you, you have to rule, rule one, rule one of the screenwriting 10 commandments, respect your audience. And I think throughout the film, Charlie learns that lesson at the start. He's like, no, I'm going to do my thing. It's my art. I'm going to protect it and make it mine. But then as we go on, he realizes this isn't a story. This isn't a thing. I need to have something in there that will give people a reason to want to watch it. And he managed to pull that off. So it's a film about pulling off an impossible task that manages to pull off an impossible task. And just as a feat of writing, I can understand why people wouldn't like it because if, if you don't give, give a shit about screenwriting, it's not going to be for you. If you expect a gonzo Nicolas Cage performance, no. It is funny and humorous, but it's also very heavy and demanding and and weird. Like It takes real-life people and elements and twists them. No, John LaRoche didn't go crazy and try and hunt down Charlie Kaufman and kill him. <laughs> Like the writer of the Orchid Thief isn't some lunatic drug addict that that tried to execute Charlie Kaufman. None of that happened, but that's that's the whole joke. That's the joke of the film that as humans we we crave conflict. Deep down, we really want to have some kind of argument or some kind of aggressive encounter because we we're just beasts at the end of the day. We're just animals, and it's it is our that nature. Caveman DNA, yeah, yeah. Like that fight, fuck caveman DNA, which um, flash forward millions of years and Brexit. Um, yes. <laughs> but I think from what I've read, it looks like, um, obviously we're talking about the, the rules, the commandments. It looks like Robert McKee has, uh, I think, slightly softened up against the use of voiceover narration. Um, I think he jokingly says um, he's not against it, despite what Charlie Kaufman says. His, his point being that it should add to the story. You shouldn't just put it in there for no reason. And obviously we get the, the end of the film where he's, he's we get the voiceover and he says, uh, and then Charlie drives back in the car with, he feels hopeful um, once again. Um, and obviously, as you said, you know, Susan Orlean, she's not um, a drug adult lunatic that will hunt people who sort of spy on her. Um, she was initially against the making of the film. Uh, did I, I agree. I 100% get that. Yeah, I, I think you think, were you going to paint me in this light? Oh, I don't, I, I don't know. I think she was sort of won over by saying, well, this is how Charlie Kaufman sort of portraying himself and because everyone else agreed to it, she felt uh, in her own words emboldened by the film, ultimately impressed by the final product and has now gone on record in saying that she, um, you know, she loves the film as well. Um, so everyone, I think by all accounts, was a big fan. Um 
the director as well, um, and it's, he was married to Sofia Coppola, Nicolas Cage's cousin, at the time of filming. So yes. when they were filming, they were actually cousins-in-law, and that made Nicolas Cage the ninth actor in history to receive an Oscar nomination for a film directed by a family member. So a um, little bit of a... I'm not even going to of... hazard to guess what the other ones are. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, it's it, it's somewhere. I mean, it's it's one of the, the the good and bad things about sort of like IMDb. Like, there's a lot of wonderful trivia on there that you just wouldn't find anywhere else. But I imagine um, there's a few coppers on that list. That whole family. Um, so we've got Jackie Cooper for Skippy being the first in 1931. I think the l- most recent before that was Frances McDormand for Fargo in 96, yes. directed by her husband Joel Cohen. Yeah, she's married to one of the Cohens, of course. Um, yeah, the Coppola's, as you said, um, Tyler Shire for Godfather Part 2, uh, directed by brother Francis Ford Coppola. Um, Hang on, those... Talia Shire is Francis Ford Coppola's brother? Sister, uh, even. I, I didn't know that. That appears that appears to be the case. That means um, that Talia Shire is Nicolas Cage's aunt. Yes, well, I suppose actually, um, a tangent of my own, uh, a shout out to fellow Cage podcast, Caged In podcast, who once he's caught up on the Cage films, he's doing his own spin-off called um, Coppola Connections, uh, oh, because yeah. because that that tree runs deep. Oh my god! You've got th- Roman Coppola who does all the stuff with Wes Anderson. Sophia Coppola, who makes her own films. I think Jason Schwartzman is yep. related to the Coppolas as well. Yeah, I think he's. Endless. He said he's got, I think, at least about three years of content to cover there. So, oh my God. Uh, God bless him. God bless you, Petros. All the all the best on your endeavors. Um, but yeah, the the power of the Coppola family tree. Um, that being said, as well, uh, Nicholas Cage's brother was also in this briefly Mark Coppola, uh, real-life brother and radio personality, who, humble brag, follows me on Twitter, by the way. Um, He often stood in for one of the twins during filming. I think this was the first film that, um, since Trapped in Paradise and the Cage chronology, that uh, Marco Kairis, he was sort of famously Nicolas Cage's official stand-in for about 12, 13 years. This was the first film he was sort of not on. Um, I think the last film he did was Wind Talkers, which came out before this. So, um, Mark Coppola getting getting shit done there. So adaptation, so. it's kind of a, it's an interesting one because I think a lot of people associate 2000s Cage. After this, he did, and I'm not trying to besmirch the great man or the great podcast. A lot of shit. He was in a lot of shit after this. I mean, definitely in the 2010s. Uh, I mean, in the 2000s, um, after this, the next film he was in, uh, because following adaptation, he did um, Sonny, which he directed. Okay, that's, um, yeah, that's pretty I, I think, good. I think the only film he directed, I could be wrong, then Matchstick Men, National Treasure, followed by 2005, Lord of War, The Weatherman. Uh, 2006, then it gets a bit shaky. Wicker Man. Bully. Wicker Man, of course, yeah. World Trade Center. Uh, 2007, Hit and Miss, Ghost Rider, Grindhouse, Next, National Treasure 2, yeah. 2008, Bangkok Dangerous Speaks for Itself, Moving On, 2009, <laughs> Knowing, G-Force, Astro Boy, Bad Lieutenant, uh, 2010. Oh yeah, Bad Lieutenant's a good one. Bad Lieutenant, looking forward to coming up to that. That's, um, a, that's a strange film. 
But then 2010, where it started with Kickass, where he was, was Big Daddy. Sort oh, of I love I love Kickass, and I love him in Kickass. Fucking fantastic Kickass! But then we got Sorcerer's Apprentice to sort of round oh, off 2010, Jesus. and then it's when we get into the tens is when things start becoming um, the scales the, tip almost. The the scales on cage tip when we start to get into the 2010s. So the 2000s, we had a, a nice great period, more hits than misses by most accounts. 2010 onwards, uh, that's when, as the kids say, yikes. Um, but it's all <laughs> all to come. Um, as of this recording, I have already watched a little spoiler, actually. I've already watched Left Behind, the 1% oh, rated yes. Rotten Tomato guff lord christian apocalyptic um is that the one where the world ends and they just they uh, don't get judged they're just left on the rapture yeah it's it's based on a famous series of christian rapture books where half the world gets raptured um and nicholas cage is there are films in the 2010s when he is phoning it the fucking that is peak cage is phoning it in but when he had to pay off a debt from buying a castle or something Castles, dinosaur bones, you named it. Yeah. He owned it, and that's why I fucking love him. So adaptation, um, kind of... Okay, so the 2000s is a better decade in my head than I thought it was for him. It was the last time he ever got an Oscar nomination, which just feels wrong, doesn't it? It doesn't, doesn't feel right that he's, well, not, he's not been a... Pre- only the second time as well. Um, but hey, he's won half the Oscars he's been nominated for. 50%'s not a bad hit rate That's to have. That's a pretty good hit rate for the Oscars. That's a better one than Meryl Streep, who's been nominated for, uh, like, 20 of them. Hey, we're and just reporting one. the facts, people. We're not cancelling Meryl Streep. We have Daniel mathematically yes. proven... We've mathematically proven that Nicolas Cage is superior <laughs> to Daniel Day-Lewis and Meryl Streep. I, I think... I see Look, this as I, an absolute win. It's a win. I scraped to see in GCSE maths... But I know good math when I see it, and that right there, Tom, is brilliant math. But this is what I've been saying, um, you know, hit and miss 2010 and beyond. 2021, looking to be a, a cage reconnaissance. Um, you know, we've got Prisoners of the Ghostland, that's going to be debuting at Sundance. Uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, Pig, Willy's Wonderland, History of Swearing, which uh, at time of recording recently dropped on Netflix as well, um, which cage eating up the scenery, very charismatic as the host in that, uh, brilliantly cast. Um, let's say 2021, the year of our Lord, Nicolas Cage will save us all. Looking to be good, looking to be a strong year for Cage. I look forward year. to none of those films getting theatrical releases. Well, Jiu-Jitsu... Is dead right now. <laughs> well, these most recent two, as of this recording, Jiu-Jitsu, digital release, now gone to DVD... The Crude's A New Age, I think, drops digitally in the UK Feb 23rd, um, because as we know, cinema and things that are nice don't exist anymore. Um, I've seen the trailer for Jiu-Jitsu. It features no actual Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah, I think it's based People... on a comic where the fighters are called Jiu-Jitsu. It's, it's a like, thing. Jiu-Jitsu I is just... not a sort, like, you don't pull out swords and... What is this? What is going on? I think it's based on a comic book. I strongly suspect, having not seen the film at this point, that the trailer's going to be better than the film, and I hate that I have to say that. Um, I suspect Nicolas Cage is going to be the Miyagi-sensei character who dies as quickly as he's introduced. 
Um, a bit like Sorcerer's Apprentice. How much? I've not seen Sorcerer's Apprentice. Is he in it much? Um, I'm not. I think he's in it more than we think he is. Okay. Um, I know they really sort of hinged the marketing on him being dressed like a hobo wizard. Um, and that would be enough to sell me on any Nicolas Cage film, uh, oh, your yeah. random cage generator of films, if you will. But um, like I say, 2021 looking to be a good year. Um, 2002, lovely year for Cage. Wonderful film. Um, and I am I feel better for watching it, um, quite frankly. Um, I want to watch it again. Uh, and when I, when I find the time, I will. But um, I suppose just looking at wrapping up, now, um, as you said, and as you mentioned last time you were on, Tom, adaptation, as you teased back on Connor, adaptation, brilliant film, uh, a damn shame that it didn't do better in the box office, a damn shame that Cage um, didn't win any awards, as nice as it was that he was nominated, but um, I suppose in the Jerry Springer-esque way, uh, your final thoughts, Tom, on adaptation? I think it's possibly the least accessible Kaufman film apart from maybe Simply Doc New York which I'm not even going to begin to describe but I, I think if you haven't seen this or being John Malkovich it makes a really good double bill um, it's in many ways it's kind of a spiritual successor to being John Malkovich the two films are very closely linked and if you're interested in the creative process and the reality of being a screenwriter, and that is that screenwriting, it's the least glamorous prestige job, if you will, in Hollywood. Because yeah. usually when a film is great, the director gets all the credit and the writers are often hung out to dry. <laughs> uh, the directors don't get paid anywhere near as much. Sorry, the, the writers don't get paid anywhere near as much as the directors or the actors. A lot of people don't really know who they are. And they have the real sort of gutter job of being given a thing to write, doing 50 million drafts of it, the producers constantly wanting something different. And if you want to really understand the frustration of that existence, then this is the film for you because, my God... As someone who would love to be a screenwriter, it does make me question that that ambition. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If you want an insight into Charlie Kaufman's mind, I, I wouldn't say start with this one. I actually think maybe watch his other stuff, then watch this. That might... Maybe watch Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine, his directorial stuff. Uh, another film he wrote, uh, the, the Science of Sleep, which a lot of people don't know about but that was directed by uh michel gondre who also wrote uh, also directed eternal sunshine and spotless mind maybe go and watch his other stuff to get a feel for his pace and his tone and then finish with this one and you'll get a real insight into who he is and then his other films will maybe start to click a bit more in your head it's this film is almost like Charlie Kaufman writing an essay on himself and then giving it to Spike Jones, who then yeah. makes it into a film. I can't think of another film that is quite like it. It's it stands on its own. It is uniquely unique. And there's just 
as you mentioned, there is a point in the film when you realise that you're watching him write the film you're watching as it's happening. You're watching it being laid out. The whole idea of a creator being a god in their mind, like, I'm going to create this world and these characters and these things, and I have total control. And he does that too. He plays that trick on you. He's able to take you one way and say, right, I'm doing this. And you're like, okay. And then he swerves the other direction. You go, aha, but I was really doing this. And you go, ah, you bastard, you got me. Oh, you're telling me all about the tricks of screenwriting and how they work, but then you get me with other tricks of screenwriting that you invented. That isn't fair. <laughs> it's it's very much, as you said, in the hands of someone lesser, it would be a very wanky, pretentious film about, oh, I'm an artist and this is my artistry. But I think that it's self-deprecating enough that that isn't, it's not obnoxious. A lot of films about making films are obnoxious as hell because a lot of the time it's directors and writers showing off how clever they are and how good, how clever you need to be to do that job. This isn't that. This doesn't glamorise working in the film industry at all. It really highlights the reality of, actually, it's a bit shit being a screenwriter because you can be given a project that is just impossible but because the last thing you wrote was a hit, you're expected to pull it off. Pay's not oh, great. Yeah. The deadlines are ridiculous. It really isn't this super cool, glamorous job that everyone thinks it is. It's one of the few films about filmmaking that is actually somewhat realistic, even though it's a batshit crazy film. The elements of it that analyse the film industry, very true to life based on conversations I've had with people in the industry. Yeah, I think if you're interested in the film industry, it's worth a watch. I think if you're interested in meta-narratives, it's worth a watch. And of course, I feel like we've not talked much about Nicolas Cage's performance, which is not to say that he's not amazing in it. It's just this is a film where he isn't the sole focus. As an actor, I feel like Cage understood how good the script was, how talented everyone was. And as I mentioned in the Con Air review, very selfless actor who lets other people shine. He will step back and let other people shine if he needs to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. my God, he does that in this film. Like, he really gives everyone stuff to work with because he's the only character that interacts with everybody else, the only actor that interacts with everybody else. Because there's quite a few big names in this. Like Maggie Gyllenhaal is in it for like a few minutes. She plays Donald Kaufman's girlfriend. Yes, yeah. She's yeah. fresh off Donnie Darko at this point. She was still on the on the way up, but she's in it very briefly. Uh, Tilda Swinton, Judy Greer, Brian Cox. A lot of really good character actors show up in this film briefly, and Cage lets them shine and. He plays a timid, insular character who is in many ways pathetic, but in many ways is sympathetic. And then in Donald, he plays someone that you really love and believe in. And he's able to strike this this wonderful balance. And I, I think this... I think this film and Face Off, they're the only films where Cage has played multiple roles. I could be wrong on that. Um... To my head right now, I think so. 
I think mm. so. And Could it, be wrong, um, but I think I think you're right on that. And in, in Face Off again, like he does a great job of playing an absolute lunatic, but then also a really dutiful, caring man. And in this, he plays two totally separate characters and just adds to his rich portfolio of range. So if you have this image in your head of what you think Nicolas Cage does and who you think, think he is, this is a film that could dispel that because he is wor- working in this film in a way that I don't know that he's ever done before or since. It's a, a singular Nicolas Cage performance that I think stands out. And I, I will go out and I'll say, it, I think this is his best performance. I do. I think he is wonderful. He is tragic. He is warm. He is caring. He's also cold and he is stubborn. He explores a whole gamut of emotions in this film. And I think to act in a Kaufman film with a premise like this, that is so weird and dense and as you said when you explain the premise to someone that hasn't heard of it they'll get confused yeah how an actor can look at a script like this and think yeah i I know what to do here i can do this yeah he's playing a real person but he's playing a drastically fictionalized version of a real person and then he is playing an actual fictionalized version of of that person yeah yeah He's there's so much to this role that I'm sure you could write a whole book just on what he's doing here. And if there were ever a film that supported this show's mantra that he is the single greatest actor of his generation, this is the one. This is the one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, um, he's pushing boundaries. He's challenging himself here. He's giving two very different but unique performances and i think this this you know it also goes to the strength of him as an actor his generosity as an actor the strength of the screenplay as well um and really gets to show even though it sounds weird to to say that he was looking for a role to <laughs> to play twins as if that was the inspiration for it when he has a script that he's passionate about um he will commit more to a role than any actor I can think of off the top of the bat. Um, yeah, more than Daniel Day-Lewis, that's for damn sure. Yeah, fuck Daniel Day-Lewis. The hack Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start just like a Twitter account just to fucking troll him. Um, he did, <laughs> we need he a new did... podcast where we just review all these films and talk about how terrible he is. Yeah, well, the only Daniel Day-Lewis Oh, the Daniel Day lamest podcast. Um, but Cage Cage did say that he ignored all his acting instincts for this role, um, and he played Charlie Kaufman exactly the way he was directed to by Spike um, by Spike Jones, and then you know got the award nominations in in the process. So, you think that was the chat- family connection? Do you think maybe, maybe he had um, just that respect of like I believe in him, I trust him. I mean, I know he's he's taken roles because of family members in the past. Um, even uh, the fucking the one of the worst films I've seen, Left Behind, as we touched upon earlier. The reason he took that film was because another of his family members, who is a priest, was a huge fan of the book series the film was based on. So, basically, begged him to take the role. So he did that film as a favor. So to in his real family life, member. he's generous as hell as well. Like he will. What more? Risk what more? Can I say? To do a yeah. favour for a family member, I mean, 
on camera, off camera, uh, the golden hog, the shiniest hog, the most generous hog. Um, what more is there to say? Um, you know, and if and if these things, you know, don't even he he will take a hit professionally for the sake of making his family one person on this planet of billions happy. If that doesn't speak to the size of his heart and hog, then I don't know this far into the podcast. I don't know what else to tell you. I don't know how else to um, to get that <laughs> to get that point across. But if Daniel Day um, Lewis had a family member that wanted him to do a film. He'd disappear and go off to Italy and become a shoemaker for like six years and, and wouldn't contact anyone. Because he no. actually did that. <laughs> Daniel Day, the, well, that's, it's a rough translation, but they did call him the spaghetti coward in Italy, if my uh, research is correct. Um, but on that on that Daniel Day hack Lewis bombshell, uh, that brings us to the end of this episode of Cage Rage and Nicholas Cage podcast. Uh, check out Adaptation while you can. It's on Netflix. It's a gift to you. Do it. Um, but Tom, thank you once again for joining me. It's been a pleasure to pick your brain and chat about this wonderful film. Anytime. Um, as, anytime. as with last time, where can we find you on the socials? You can find me on Twitter at tbroomy. Uh, I mainly tweet a lot of really left-wing hot takes and then talk about pro wrestling so yeah heed that warning uh, if you want to dm me about showing up on a podcast or writing a guest article i can do that for you you can find my writing at various places uh, culturedvultures.com i do stuff there jump cut online and occasionally i do film reviews for bbc radio sussex when and if they need me uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've always got something on the go. I'm always hustling. I'm always shaking and moving. Lockdown's going on. Don't have anywhere to be. You can try and find me on Facebook, but I, I probably won't accept friend requests. So that, that would be a <laughs> fruitless endeavor. I think I said that in the last show as well, but I want to. I want to reiterate that one. You can follow me on Twitter, but my my Facebook is uh, that's a no go. No, that's a total Daniel Day-Lewis move, and we don't accept that on this podcast. But um, <laughs> again, Tom, thank you for joining me. Pleasure as ever. Um, you can find this uh, show on the Twitters as well, at cage underscore podcast. And there's the link tree with all the various bits and pieces there. Um, I mainly post about Nicolas Cage there. It's my other Twitter. That's for all my shit hot left wing takes if that's the kind of thing you're into what an admin, what a way to end, fuck Daniel Day-Lewis, thank you for joining me and listening if you have been we'll see you in the next one but until then you take care of yourself and keep on keep on caging, bye bye